trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I gathered that you would not even last five seconds listening to this program if somewhere in your heart there was a little spark, maybe a roaring fire of freedom. And so my guest, Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos, uh, is is with me today. And Eric, I, th- I thought maybe we could start by talking a little bit about uh, why it matters. You you had a column recently about why you're a libertarian. And I would love to delve into that just so maybe those who are kind of new to the concept of, hey, I'm ready to stand up for freedom. Talk to us about your experience. Well, sure. Uh, here we are, us libertarians plotting to take over the world and leave you alone, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the core of, of libertarian uh, philosophy in a nutshell. It's not that we're a bunch of dirty hippies who want to sit around and, and take bong hits and watch Beavis and Butthead. That's a common misapprehension. Uh, the core idea of libertarianism is that we each own ourselves. And the corollary to that is that we don't own anybody else. And if you accept that as the basis for moving forward, then you accept the idea that what other people have isn't yours and that you don't have any right to tell other people what to do, so long as whatever they're doing isn't hurting anybody. And it's a really nice, consistent uh, uh, moral philosophy, which is a stark contrast to the other philosophies out there that are just full of these aggravating contradictions. You know, you, for example, conservatism. Well, what do they want to conserve exactly? You know, in a lot of things, they agree with the left. They agree that it's okay to use government force to compel people to do things that they don't like, like smoke pot, for example. So how do you argue against using the government for other purposes? Uh, and you wind up with this kind of hyena battle of people trying to use the government to impose their way of life on other people. And libertarianism, libertarians are the only ones who don't do that. No, it's it's a good point. I mean, you, you make a good point. And, and yet, even even people who maybe maybe don't take you know a strong libertarian approach, but just simply, yeah, hey, I want to be free. Somehow we've reached a point where in society that's suspect. suspect you know, it's like freedom is dangerous, or, or somehow that's unnatural. <laughs> you know, that I, I don't know. They're okay with you know some teacher teaching kids about all the different flags they should be flying. You know, in the classroom, their their freak flag. Mm-hmm. But but uh, boy, you start talking freedom, and whoa, hey man, that's a little extreme, don't you think? Well, and there's also there's also this strange paradox that others have pointed out or noticed as well, which is that most people, even people on the hardcore left, esteem freedom greatly when it comes to themselves. The problem is that they don't esteem freedom for other people. A good point. I can be trusted with it, but not you. Right. Right. You know, and I think just pointing that out to people, if there's any hope of reasoning with a person, and for most people, I think that there is hope for that. It may get through. You know, it's it's not a utilitarian argument. It's a very precise, very logically consistent argument to make to people. You know, if, if taking other people's things is wrong, then it's always wrong to take people's things. You know, I mean, it, it, that's that's just an example. And there are many others that you can use. Uh, you know, libertarianism is, you know, accused of being utopian, which is absurd. It, it doesn't expect there to be perfection in the world. What it does expect is that there might be something better than what we have right now. Right. Right. And and for, for those who, who may misconstrue the non-aggression principle, 
I know that uh, there's a misnomer out there. Well, libertarians are nothing more than pacifists, and you know they would never, yeah. never stand up for anything, or there's there's never a right time to you know to um, to exercise violence. And yet, um, keeping it in in perspective, um, talk, walk us through the, the non-aggression principle, just so those who misunderstand it can have a better grasp on what it really means. Well, sure, you have a right to be left alone. And implicit in that is if somebody doesn't leave you alone, that is if somebody attempts to hurt you, as by sticking a gun in your face, for example, uh, to try to make you hand over money, well, then you have a right to defend yourself. Uh, Libertarians are actually quite vociferous in uh, their defense of self-defense. What they're opposed to is aggressive violence, and that's an entirely different thing, and it's important to make that distinction. You know, going through life and just minding your own business is cool. Minding other people's business is not cool, you know, and when you start minding other people's business, you might get punched in the face. And that's kind of a colloquial way to look at how libertarians view this. So I have to ask you this, Eric, based on the the very anti-liberty behavior that we saw from government, from public health officials, and even from a lot of our, you know, uh, Karen-inclined citizens, do you think more people may be open to the idea of libertarianism than there were, say, four years ago? I sure hope so. Um and I think maybe it is so. And I think the reason it, it might be so is because I think more people are beginning to understand the motives um, you know, that underpin a lot of what was going on. Whereas previously, I think the, the default consensus was, well, you know, the government passes laws or, or it expects us to do X, Y, or Z because X, Y, or Z uh, is in the general interest and they mean well and they're not trying to actively hurt us. Whereas now we know they are actively trying to hurt us. And we understand that their motives are pernicious and even evil. And once you understand that, uh, it's easy to take the next step and just reject in total the idea of these people telling us what to do and ordering us about. Yep, agreed. And and it's it really feels like, and maybe I'm I'm wrong on this. Feel free to disagree. But it seems like the more people start to realize, hey, we are actually in danger of, of losing our freedoms and we're starting to stand up and push back. We're not wearing the mask. Mm-hmm. We're not getting the jab. We're not, you know, uh, going to go along with the, the next uh, big scare. It seems like the people in power are beginning to comprehend, hey, maybe our days are numbered, you know, especially with the approaching 2024 election. It seems like they're trying to do as much damage to our freedom as possible in what time they have left in power. Oh, sure. And, you know, they're going to flail around even more violently, I think, as it becomes more and more apparent that people are no longer buying in. You mentioned the thing with the masks, and it's interesting to juxtapose people's attitudes now versus at the start of the uh, pandemic, when it was very rare to find anybody who would really come out uh, vociferously against the wearing of the masks. I was one of them. I think you were one of them. But we were in a really small minority of people. Most people, even if they didn't like it, they went along with it because they thought, well, it's going to ease other people's feelings. Uh, you know, it'll help calm them down. And who knows, maybe it'll help stop the spread. Now you have got uh, at least if you know, online comments and so on and, and what's going on generally uh, are any indication. You have got a lot of people who have drawn a hard line and said, no, I'm not going to do that again, period. Um, and you know, implicit in that, too, is that I'm not going to take any uh, drugs that you try to force me to take either. Uh, period. I'm just not going to I'm not going to bow to this anymore. And I, I think it, it indicates that people have had enough of it. Thank God for that, too. Well, and the announcement last week that uh, Kamala Harris will be the new gun violence prevention czar. Yeah. Um, you know, it just tells you that 
re- reason and reality are, are not in the lexicon of those in power. There's one thing they understand, and that's force, and that's why they want to use government to be the, uh, the dynamic behind every action that they take. Well, sure, and the hypocrisy has become so blatant and affronterous, so evident, that more and more people are beginning to notice it. I mean, after all, you've got somebody like Biden and Harris uh, ululating about the dangers of guns while they're surrounded by cordons of heavily armed men. Right. You know, right. so it's okay for them to, to, you know, to be kept safe by armed guards and armed men. But uh, we are to be left to our own devices, and we are to be criminalized if we uh, so much as dare to have a gun to protect ourselves against the depredations of violent criminals. And it's not selling anymore. Well, I, th- I see exciting days ahead of us, and I'm, I'm yes, trying to be a little bit uh, sarcastic as I say that. Um, I, if, if they're willing to go to these lengths and willing to, uh, to gaslight us the way they are right now, we're still a year and some change out from the 2024 election. I can only imagine how much more intense it's going to get over the next year. Yeah, well, the thing that worries me the most now that you bring this subject up is not pandemic mark two. Uh, or really any other thing like that. What worries me the most is that these maniacs are going to precipitate a wider conflict over Kiev in Ukraine. And with the possibility of that, then Biden becomes the war president, you know, and who knows, maybe he, he declares martial law, at which point we don't have to worry about elections anymore. And something like that, I think, is entirely foreseeable. These maniacs are not letting up on this Ukraine business. Yeah, and just for for the sake of those uh, following along at home here, um, where do you see it? I mean, it, we we've had the the press has been uniformly uh, favorable to Ukraine in its reporting, but it sounds mm-hmm. like the rocks of reality have uh, are something they've crashed upon here lately, and there's really not a lot of places left to turn, are there? Well, I you know I think the American people are getting tired of it, and particularly they're getting tired of being taxed and made to pay. Uh, you know, $8 for a, a stick of butter at the grocery store while the government is lavishing billions of dollars on on Kiev. You know, if you think about the, the amount of money that has been sent over to the government of Zelensky over just the last year, it would probably be enough to cut every single American a check sufficient to pay for their groceries for a year, at least, and probably much more than that. Uh, and, and that kind of sticks in your craw. You know, the idea that uh, the government of the United States seems to be more interested in the welfare of Ukrainians than it does in the welfare of, of Americans. And I, you know, again, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the plight of the average Ukrainian, but that's beside the point here. Absolutely. Okay, hold that thought. We've got more exciting things to discuss. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to go visit his website. And we'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, uh, I I saw an article that you had published earlier about uh, starting with the 2026 model year, there's going to be an exciting new feature required to be in cars uh, to keep us safe on the roads, or or so so I've heard. Tell me about this feature. Well, it's marketed as an impaired driving detection technology, and I should preface this as being an inevitability. You know, for many decades now, people have been presumed to be drunk simply by dint of the fact that they happen to be driving, uh, and they're forced to stop at a checkpoint 
where they're obliged to demonstrate that they're not drunk, despite they're not having given any reason at all to suspect that they're drunk. Well, having accepted that as legitimate, is it any surprise that now our cars are going to presume us to be drunk? You're going to have to get in and apparently put your finger on something so that the the car can sample your body chemistry or uh, it will be done through the air or something. And it used to be that you had to have been convicted of drunk driving before you had to have a breathalyzer put in your car. But it's more than just that. Uh, You know, I harp on words because I think that really is an important thing to do. And they use the term impaired. They don't use the term drunk. They use impaired. And what's sinister about that is who gets to define what impaired is? Well, I believe that they're going to end up defining impaired as anything that they don't like in terms of how you drive. For example, uh, if you don't signal when you make a lane change, even if there's nobody else in the vicinity, uh, they're going to con- construe that as evidence of impaired driving. Or if you accelerate too aggressively or you brake too abruptly or you make a lane change, anything you can think of. And if you think that's paranoid, ask a guy who drives a commercial truck for a living. They already do this uh, to commercial truck drivers, and they're going to do it to us and our passenger cars. And it's all part of a plan to make driving so insufferable and intolerable that we won't want to drive anymore. And that's the end goal behind all of this. Wow. Man, I, I, I don't even have words. I mean, it, it's, it's just, it's just a couple steps away from here. Let me help you put on this straight jacket. This is for your own safety. Mm-hmm. And you know, you'll have a, mm-hmm. you'll have a monitor with you, someone who'll be accompanying you and everything you do, but we can't trust you to use your arms freely because you might hurt someone or even hurt yourself. Yeah, you notice that they refer to this as advanced driver assistance technology. I'm sure you've heard the term. And almost all new cars have a bevy of these advanced driver assistance technologies, which implies that you're incompetent. It implies that you need assistance, right? You know, either you can drive or you can't. If you need assistance to drive, well, then there's something wrong with you as a driver. Uh, and, and so naturally, it'll, it'll, it'll etiolate, as they say in physiology, uh, into more and more aggressive forms of assistance to the point where you're no longer the driver, you're just the occupant of uh, the left seat. Man, that is, uh, it's chilling, but again, it uh, it makes me appreciate my clunky old uh, V8-powered <laughs> gas engine. Yeah, look at, like, for example, this is all stuff that's already in process or actually out out there in the real world. A number of insurance companies will offer you a discount if you put one of these little electronic dongle things inside your OBD port uh, that allows them to keep track of everything that you do behind the wheel, which means that, you know, if you speed, if you accelerate aggressively, uh, all of these things will then be used to dun you. So the only way you get the so-called discount uh, is if you hew to every single traffic law to the letter and drive like the proverbial little old lady with a Fabergé egg under the accelerator pedal. Wow. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not liking where we're headed here. I mean, it's, it, I th- a friend of mine calls it, you know, it's it's a mix between Brave New World and 1984. We've got uh, Huxwell <laughs> at work in our lives. Oh, I know, you know, I've been thinking myself, just professionally, whether I'm going to be able to continue to review cars after 2026. Because, you know, I will not, just like I would not put on a face diaper, because I will not pretend that I'm sick. Uh, I'm not going to pretend uh, that I'm drunk and have my body chemistry sampled by a car and I'm certainly not going to allow myself to be biometrically scanned by a freaking car in order to be allowed to drive it. And a lot of uh, they're starting to put that in cars. Uh, there was a I had a, a, a Genesis GV60 a couple of months ago, and 
you can unlock the car right now. It's optional, but you can unlock the car by allowing the car to scan your iris. How about that? Oh. And then rather than a key start, you just let your finger touch something, and that uh, scans your fingerprint, and that lets you start the car that way. Now, it's all optional right now, but when they, you know, they, they, that's how they usually start with this stuff. They, they put it as a feature that's optional. Uh, but eventually, it's going to become standard, and you'll have to use it. And I won't. I'm done at that point. I'm strapping on my parachute, and I'll stick to driving my Trans Am instead. Wow, isn't it crazy though? How much of the 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 uh, the technology that can be used to monitor and oppress us comes under the guise of, hey, this is just for convenience. Look how convenient this is. I think of digital currencies same way. Oh, it's so <laughs> convenient, but but there comes oh, it's there's always a price. It's brilliant. You know, technology is neutral, but it can be abused. And when you have a population that has been kind of addicted to this narcotic of convenience and of the latest thing and gadgetry, you know, the obvious, uh, the, the, the biggest aspect here is the cell phone. You know, before the cell phone, this stuff was really on the periphery. But now you've got people, just about everybody, and I'm one of them, who has one of these things. And we've gotten used to pecking at these things constantly and being used to accepting being uh, tracked, monitored, uh, and all these other things that these phones are used for. And so that was the, the, you know, the leading edge. And now it's expanding and expanding. And it's you know, not coincidental that cars are just basically 5,000-pound cell phones at this point. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be just like Neo in the Matrix, plugged into a virtual reality. Uh, and who knows, maybe they'll use this as batteries, too. Oh, my goodness. That's, that is some vivid imagery. Now, so, something you had mentioned, I think you just published this this morning. Um, talk to me about, uh, I understand the auto workers are going on strike, and you make the case that this might actually yeah. be an opportunity for, for Trump. Yeah, the UAW, which is the big union that represents most of the big three auto workers, has actually been on strike for a couple of weeks now. And, uh, you know, they're trying to get more pay, uh, which I think is titanically stupid at a time when the industry is not doing very well. But the, the more important thing is they don't seem to understand that their jobs are going to go away if this uh, juggernaut to electrify everything uh, proceeds apace, uh, because electric cars are just battery-powered devices, and they, it takes a whole lot less in terms of workers to put these things together. And most of the components, by the way, uh, come from or even made in China. So, you know, it occurs to me that Trump could, could maybe talk to these people and say, look, you guys want to have your high-paying jobs. Uh, the way we do that is to stop this electrification push, and the way we do that uh, is to dig into the falsity of this notion that the climate is in crisis and we're all going to die because these 0.04% of the Earth's atmosphere that CO2 might be increased by a fraction of a percent and we're all going to die, which is utter nonsense and hysteria. Wow. So I, I got to ask you at this point, uh, I know, you know, Trump has his troubles and we've got the indictments and so forth and mm-hmm. all these obstacles being thrown up. But it looks like the polling, uh, even even the mainstream media has to admit the polling seems to favor him at this point, at least over Biden. Well, sure. Biden's a catastrophe. You know, the only people who support this guy at this point uh, are the true believing hardcore left. And of course, most of those benefit because they're part of the government apparatus. But for everybody else. The last three years have been a disaster to get back to the $8 for a stick of butter. You know, every, anybody who's gone shopping lately knows they're paying anywhere from 30 to 50% more for food. Uh, you know, gas, they're paying twice as much. Uh, you know, they, they try and finance a house now. What is the interest rate? Seven or 8%. Uh, it's double what it was, uh, you know, before, before Biden became president. It's a catastrophe, purely uh, on, a, on a bottom line economic level. 
Uh, and then there's the other aspect of it. Finally, despite the, the iron wall that the media put up to protect him, the grift of this man and his family has become so appallingly evident that I think the latest poll number shows something like 60 percent, and this is irrespective of party affiliation, believe that Biden is a crook. Well, it uh, it couldn't come a moment too soon, but I, I, you and I were talking before we went on the air that there are some concerns about what comes next, though. Is it going to be Gavin oh, yeah. Newsom? Is it going to be Big Mikey? You know, who who will they possibly yeah. run if not Biden? You know, well, people talk about Biden's age, and he will be almost 82 if he were to win a second term. Almost 82. And it's not so much his age, rather his senility. Right. Uh, you know, the fact that he's, he, you know, he's cognitively impaired. There's a reason why... You know, if you're, if you're in, uh, for example, an airline pilot, they have mandatory retirement at, I think, 60 or 65. And even if the guy is an excellent pilot at that moment, once you reach a certain age, the statistical probability of you seizing up or having some kind of a major health crisis, they increase. And they increase more and more the older that you get. Got to stop so you, you here, Eric. Eric, we're up against the break. Thanks again, though, for being my guest. Yes. Oh, sure. Thank Brian you, Brian. Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for joining me today. Look, I know not everybody is, you know, an eager beaver out there, you know, trying to trying to get to the truth. Some of us are kind of dragged reluctantly. Oh, boy, here we go. You know, it's time to, time to, to see what's what. But I applaud you for your courage. If you're one of those who is, is willing to face even unpleasant or uncomfortable truths, you know, that's, uh, that takes something. And, and I'm not trying to put down everybody else who isn't ready for it. Let's just say there's a lot of people who would rather stick with comfortable lies or things that are soft and easy to their ears, you know, rather than, than face the truth of uh, things are not getting better and probably probably won't for the, for the short term. I'm going to share a commentary with you in a few minutes from uh, James Howard Kunstler. And there's a phrase he uses in there about the buffet of consequences. Now, I've used that myself before, and I, I think he, he just nails it. There's a buffet of consequences for bad past decisions, and uh, we're all going to be invited to sit down at the table. In fact, uh, you know, we may, we may be forced to sit down at the table. And I wanted to share something with you here. Just This is, this is to me, such an interesting uh, piece of video here. Um, I don't know if, if you, uh, look, some people are really caught up in conspiracy theories. In fact, some people spend so much time that I, I think it's actually wasteful. But uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I think this is in Queensland. I think it's in New South Wales. Here is a taste of what's to come. And this, again, so this is not the U.S., but listen to this police official describing what to do when someone starts talking conspiracy theories. Check this out. If it's anybody out there that knows of someone that might be showing concerning behaviour around you know, conspiracy theories, anti-government, anti-police, um, conspiracy theories around COVID-19 vaccination, as what we're seeing with the train family, we'd want to know about We want to know about that. Uh, and you can either contact police directly or, or go through crime stories. We want to know when somebody is talking about the government or, or its enforcement mechanisms in a way that's, uh, shall we say, less than supportive. Holy cow. Is that the mask coming off? Is that what that looks like? That's a little bit spooky. All right. Nonetheless, I think I want to share with you this uh, James Howard Kunstler article. 
because the truth about the COVID narrative is definitely getting more uncomfortable by the day. And there have been some very interesting revelations just in the last few days. In fact, uh, one of the ones, this came across my feed last night. And by the way, thank you to Ruben and others who send me the, these, uh, these stories. I, I love it when my listeners point things out to me. And, and it's also helpful, too, when you see it coming from multiple sources. It's like, okay, you know, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, you know, we can confirm that uh, this is taking place. So I think it was, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm sorry, I don't have the article in front of me at the moment, but I believe it was the Mayo Clinic talked about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine both being curative treatments for COVID. Okay, now I'm not, I'm not trained in medicine, but curative, meaning it will help you get better. That's, boy, that sure is different than what we were told, you know. No, 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 you get the vaccine. You Don't you even question, don't you eat that horse paste, you, Mr. Ed. Don't, who do you think you are? Trust the science. The point being that all along, those were viable ways to treat COVID. Now, again, may not apply in every case, but it doesn't need to. And, and again, I'm going to speak from anecdotal experience here. When my wife was diagnosed with COVID, when I had symptoms that I will say were consistent with COVID, I've stopped getting tests and I won't get tested again. We both started on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And I've mentioned this before, the the symptoms dissipated by at least 90% within the first 24 hours. Quite remarkable. Now, it took a few days till we were back to our, you know, regular happy selves, but it just, to me, seems just wicked that that would have been kept from the public or discouraged or doctors or pharmacists punished for making it available to people. So let's talk about some of the more uh, uncomfortable revelations that are coming out now. Uh, slouching towards, towards Beelzebub. This is James Howard Kunstler's latest uh, column. He starts with a quote from Dr. Anthony Fauci. Using the uh, Fauci lied, people died trend is a great way to show you, friends, you're a conspiracy theorist, said Dr. Fauci. So James says, here's what you might have learned over the weekend if you ventured into the thickets of alt news. In April and May of 2021, the president, Joe Biden, the whole White House COVID response team, Andy Slavitt and company, And everyone in the White House Communications Office, the U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, senior officials of the CDC, including Director Rochelle Walensky, Francis Collins, head of the NIH, and Dr. Anthony Fauci of NIAID, were all freaking out, holding crisis meetings and sending blizzards of emails among each other after being informed by a Pfizer safety report that the miraculous new mRNA COVID vaccines produced significant cases of myocarditis and blood clotting abnormalities. Now, all of these officials proceeded to craft a campaign to tell the public that this myocarditis was mild, extremely rare, and self-resolving. By the way, it wasn't. And they urged all Americans over 12 to keep taking the vax shots. Later, they expanded the vaccine program to include children down to six months old. By 2022, all of U.S. public health officialdom had to know the vaxes were also ineffective at preventing infection and transmission of COVID. Rochelle Walensky kept pushing the vaccines as safe and effective until she resigned in June 2023. Her replacement, Mandy K. Cohen, is still pushing the latest mRNA booster shots in the face of all reports, mainly from the U.K. and other foreign countries, 
of a shocking rise in all causes deaths and disabilities from heart and blood disease, neurological injury, and cancers. The CDC refused this month to release updated information on case numbers of myocarditis and pericarditis in the USA. That's kind of revealing in and of itself, isn't it? Now, the record of those frantic 2021 doings in the White House and CDC came from a document dump prompted by a FOIA request by Edward Berkovich, a lawyer associated with Naomi Wolf's Daily Cloud news organization. He requested emails between February and June 2021 that included the term myocarditis. CDC sent 472 pages, followed by an additional 46 pages believed to be sent by a whistleblower that included emails between White House officials up to the president. Of the 47 pages, 37 were entirely redacted. Whited out, not blacked out, that is blank pages, only two pages of the 46 contained no redactions. I guess I think it's actually uh, 472 of the 472, 37 were entirely redacted. Now, these redactions were made, the CDC said, pursuant to exemptions 5 and 6 under Code 5 USC subsection 552, which protects documents received by the president. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, I'm sorry, that was a lot to wade through. Apologies. What's the upshot? Well, he says, from early on, our government lied about the safety of the vaccines at the same time that they lied and confabulated about the origins of the COVID-19 virus. He says they continue lying about all of this to this day, even as they prepare or appear to prepare for a replay of a pandemic. Now that the weekend's over, he says, you're not going to read about any of this in the New York Times. Why is that? He says, I will offer my theory that newspaper's business model based on pages and pages of print advertising is completely broken and it's on financial life support from the CIA and or DARPA, probably facilitated by private sector cutouts laundering the money. That's how dishonorable the flagship of U.S. media is. And, of course, there's the added layer of government-directed censorship, also through private sector cutouts, aimed at suppressing the truth about COVID from every angle, especially the vaccines. Doesn't all of this look rather sinister? He says, choose from one of two possible explanations. One, the COVID-19 episode from the beginning was a fantastic fiasco of blundering incompetence made by hundreds of officials from many agencies plus elected leaders, and at every stage was made worse by additional incompetent actions aimed at concealing massive chains of prior misdeeds, producing more misdeeds, resulting in the wholesale collapse of authority in our country. In other words, an epic cluster, you know what. Or number two, the entire COVID episode <clears throat> is a chain of crimes committed deliberately with malicious intent to kill and injure large numbers of people while continuing to deprive the survivors of their basic liberties and their property. Because identical events are seen in all the other nations of Western civilization, it would be reasonable to infer some kind of coordination managed by a supervisory force or entity. What we see is a globalist coalition formed of the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the European Union, the United Nations, the pharmaceutical industry, the Five Eyes Intel Alliance, the global banking establishment, the Democratic Party, and scores of well-endowed non-governmental agencies such as the George Soros constellation of councils and foundations. What else is unseen? Kunstler says one strangely conspicuous element of the whole picture is the phantom leadership of the supposed world hegemon, USA, in the figurehead Joe Biden. 
He says the most embarrassingly uncharacteristic empty vessel we've ever seen. Bottom line is events are moving quickly. He says they're setting up the steam table for that banquet of consequences. Like I say, you and I have been offered a seat at the table. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging with me. It was, uh, you know, it was good to get that to James Howard Kunstler article out there. I've got it in today's show notes, which you can check out at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes for September 26, 2023. Wow, where did this month go? So a couple things I want to touch on, including our article of the day. Uh, first, I... I saw an article years ago from one of my favorite writers. Sadly, he is no longer among us, but uh, Will Grigg wrote about the power of the word no. He says it's the most powerful word in any language. You have the power to say no, but sometimes we're afraid to say no. And I'm guilty of this too. I'm a pleaser. I I don't want to upset anybody when they ask me, can you do this for me? Will you do that? You know, it's very hard to say no. And when someone comes along and says, well, you must do this or, you know, for the good, for the common good, you're going to have to do this. You signed the public contract (laughs) or the social contract, I should say. Uh, We can still say no. There's a great article on AmericanThinker.com from Jeffrey Folks, How to Say No. I thought this was especially timely. He says parents that find it hard to say no to their, find it hard rather to say no to their children. According to one source, Parents worry that no will harm their relationship or they're afraid to anger their children and cause a battle. So for parents, there are strategies that can be used to smooth over problems with saying no. But for politicians, it's a different story. Politically, it's difficult to oppose relief spending during a crisis. The Biden administration has found no end of crises from COVID relief to student loan forgiveness to the climate emergency, all of them requiring massive wealth transfer to those who just happen to be large contributors to Democrat campaigns. Even conservatives who recognize the folly of this spending find it difficult to make the case for doing nothing. A crisis, even a temporary or dubious one, seems to demand action. Now, he says Calvin Coolidge was the only American president since Theodore Roosevelt who held the line on spending, at least for a while. A graph of real per capita spending since 1800 shows that aside from the Civil War spending, which was extremely modest by modern standards, there was little growth in federal expenditures until Woodrow Wilson's presidency. Pre-World War I spending averaged 2.5% of GDP following Wilson's wartime increases. Harding and Coolidge brought spending back to pre-war levels. But every post-Depression president increased real government spending per capita, with the greatest offenders being FDR, LBJ, Obama, and Biden. Now, in 2021, Biden's first year in office, federal spending was 29.26%. Of GDP. In 2018, under President Trump, the federal government spent 20.18% of GDP. It was the excessive spending in response to COVID, alongside spending for green energy, that caused the historic inflation of Biden's first two years in office. Along with inflation, which has harmed almost every American, it's estimated that at least 20% of COVID funding, or $200 billion for small businesses, was lost to fraud. Losses on green energy will probably be even greater. 
Forbes is correct in stating that when the government tried to pick winners and losers in the marketplace, like the Biden and Obama-Biden administration did in 2009, taxpayers got to foot the bill. Biden has passed $6.272 trillion in spending in fiscal 2022 alone, making the scale of funding and potential fraud 100 times greater than under Obama. Now, it's crucial to understand what's meant by that bland word, spending. Graft would be a better description since government spending involves seizing funds from affluent individuals and corporations and distributing them to the administration's supporters and contributors. Though supporters are a diverse group, ethnic minorities, green energy producers, teachers' unions, public worker unions, gays and transgenders, but the one thing that connects all of them is the involvement in pay-to-play politics. Biden's expenditures are ruinous for the country at large, but they're lucrative for the administration. This sort of graft is the oldest, dirtiest sort of politics. Biden may have lost most of his faculties, but he still understands pay-to-play. If re-elected... Biden will spend the country past the tipping point at which the debt servicing impinges on all other spending. As of 2022, the ratio of total public debt to GDP was already 121%, far higher than the 77% maximum thought to be healthy for the economy. So what happens when the debt to GDP ratio reaches 200% as it surely will, given the unwillingness of both parties to curtail spending? Well, according to CBO projections, the U.S. will reach that level of debt by 2051. At that point, 7% of the federal budget will go towards serving the debt, servicing the debt, rather, an amount larger than Social Security spending. That's pretty staggering. The 200% level will usher in a snowball effect in which larger and larger amounts must be spent just to service the mounting debt. Ultimately, the only way to avoid default would be monetization or wealth seizure. But well before that level of debt is reached, debt levels above 77% result in the slower economy that we've seen under Obama and Biden. So what's needed is for Republicans to start saying no. Speaker McCarthy's April 2023 spending bill passed by the House is a good start since it imposes spending caps, however modest, on discretionary spending and claws back unspent COVID money, cancels student debt forgiveness, repeals tax incentives for green energy, and provides incentives for oil and gas drilling. But these small efforts are not enough. America needs representatives who will scream, No! True restraint involves rolling back every agency and department and eliminating many. Begin with the three that Rick Perry couldn't name in the 2008 presidential debate, energy, commerce, and education, none of which are areas in which the government has any legitimate role. Follow that up with drastic cuts in EPA, IRS, Justice Department, Job Corps, Peace Corps, Teacher Corps, and thousands of other programs, agencies, and departments. Eliminate federal welfare benefits and restrain Social Security and Medicare by capping spending at a percentage of GDP. Jeffrey Folk says it's no different from the kind of self-discipline it takes to be successful at any endeavor. To be in fiscal control... Individuals must restrain their spending or increase income by some productive activity, not just by seizing more from others. To be healthy, one must restrict one's food consumption and engage in exercise. To be happily married, one must be considerate and caring towards one's spouse. To be socially well-liked, one must be positive, helpful, and honest with others. Just living day-to-day involves effort, something politicians don't understand because they confiscate their livings from those who actually work. 
None of this is so very difficult to understand. When one embraces a conservative outlook, all things are possible. For the individual, conservative habits result in better health, a balanced budget at home, a stable marriage, and an optimistic outlook. For the country, true conservatism would bring about a genuine transformation, a balanced budget, manageable deficit, larger and more productive private sector, and greater national security. He says government should reflect the values of its citizens, but it does not reflect my values or those of at least half of Americans. At all levels, government in the U.S., with a few exceptions, is now grossly corrupt. And Jeffrey Folk says, I believe in strength and self-reliance, but government fosters weakness and dependence. I worship the beauty of the sun, the stars, the moonlight, the healthy body, the sound of beautiful music. Government worships payoffs, fraud, and vote buying. Conservatives understand that the path to happiness is through self-restraint and self-denial. By simplifying our lives and accepting proper limits, we are able to live happily and securely. Progressives have set America on a path to economic collapse and military defeat and occupation. He says the country could still be saved, but only by learning how to say no. Great commentary. Hey, the article of the day that I would like you to consider is, is one that may not make sense to everybody, but it starts with the question, why do conservatives always seem to be behind the curve when it comes to fighting the culture war? Christian Toto has an excellent article about the rights refusal to support the arts. Now, when I say the arts, I mean even, even conservative movies. Okay, I'll take The Sound of Freedom, for example. How much infighting do you see among conservatives? Well, the purity of that message wasn't sufficient for me to get behind it or whatever. The left doesn't have that problem. And frankly, I've only got a minute here, but I'm just going to make the case that the arts are a great way to communicate messages that sometimes can't be communicated in a more direct, like political stump speech fashion. Artists who can create music, painting, writing, you know, uh, films or acting. They can deliver a message that sometimes would be difficult to just get in a straightforward, you know, speech. But the right seems pretty averse to art. Maybe it's because we think, well, it's the artsy-fartsy crowd. This is the wine and cheese crowd. I don't want to be with those, you know, those liberals. Just consider, if there's a message that's worth getting out there, if there's beauty to be created in the, in the context of, of getting that message out there, the right needs to be a part of that. So I would recommend take a look at Christian Toto's article. Yeah, it challenged me on a couple of levels, but it was also, I thought, uh, very plausible. This may be one of the reasons why we're always behind when it comes to fighting the culture war. Thanks again for tuning in. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you're so inclined, feel free to subscribe. This is The Brian Hyde Show.